Pope Francis accepts the resignation of a progressive American bishop, the Vatican completes an investigation of a traditional bishop, and the working document of the upcoming Synod on Synodality has been released. The Papal Posse, Father Gerald Murray and Robert Royal ride in with analysis of these stories and more. And human trafficking is a multi-billion dollar criminal enterprise, most horrifyingly targeting children. I sat down with the star of the new thriller, Sound of Freedom, actor Jim Caviezel, which touches on this terrifying issue. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, it's an important one, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. Pope Francis has accepted the resignation of the controversial bishop of Knoxville, Tennessee, Richard Stickler, or Sticka, rather, this week. And it was revealed that the Vatican has just concluded an investigation of the bishop of Tyler, Texas, Joseph Strickland. All of this on the heels of the release of the working document, the Instrumentum Laboris, for the first phase of the Synod on Synodality, which is set to start this October. What does the document portend? Here to react to all of it is the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of the CatholicThing.org, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Gentlemen, thank you once again for being with us. Uh, I want to dive in and look at this document, uh, this synodal document titled, A Synodal Church Communion Participation Mission. Now, this is going to direct the first session of this synod starting in October. Here's how it opens. It reads, the synod represents an opportunity to walk together as a church capable of welcoming and accompanying, accepting the necessary changes in rules, structures, and procedures. The same applies to many other issues that emerge in the discussion trends or threads. Uh, Robert, what do you think when you read that? And what necessary changes to rules are being referred to here? Well, Raymond, you know, I wrote a column about that earlier this week. And what I entitled it was uh, A Synod of No Surprises. Because if you read the text, I, I think the three of us could have written that text if we, if we had a desire to do so. There are no surprises in there, not a single word in 27,000 words. And it's the usual issues that we've heard about, women deacons, LGBT welcoming, uh, and a, re a real push toward what I'm almost tempted to call the super dogma that exists now of welcoming all and making everybody feel comfortable. And it's, it's very odd because we've already been at this for a couple of years, two years since, since we began. In fact, the first line of that document says the, the entire Catholic Church has been in motion since Pope Francis uh, called us to uh, the Synod in 2021. Well, there, there seems to be no motion forward, whatever, and I'm willing to predict that two years from now, when those two October uh, consultations are done, we're pretty much going to be in the same place. We're going to know, as we saw in previous synods, that the issues, the usual issues, which are largely set by the secular world, are the ones that are going to be discussed. The uh, marginalization of people who are of a more traditional bent shows it shows up nowhere 
and the conversation such as it is, and it may be helpful to people to be you know, talking with other people that they, they've never talked with before, but I think the conversation already is predetermined, and, I, and I, I'm quite willing to predict almost 100 percent accuracy what the final result will be. Mm. Uh, under the heading, Father Jerry, the characteristic signs of a synodal church, the document states this, a synodal church is open, it's welcoming, and embraces all. The radical call is, therefore, to build together synodally an attractive and concrete church, an outgoing church in which all feel welcome. Now, Father Jerry, your reaction to that, and pick up on what we were just talking about, the idea that uh, the discussion threads are going to govern where this document ultimately lands or the Pope's thinking does. Well, Raymond, this reminds me of that pipe psychology book a few years ago called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Uh, do you remember that book? Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is nonsense. This is a synod of everybody, come on in. We're going to sit around. We're going to make sure everybody feels good. And people who don't like certain teachings or rules, as they're called in the church, uh, guess what? Your time has come because we got to figure out a way to make you happy. So when they use the word necessary, I always say, well, who's the one determines what's necessary? Uh, in this case, it's going to be the people running the show. Uh, these changes are not necessary. You know, women becoming deacons, uh, the church affirming that homosexual activity is not sinful. Uh, these things are not possible, but they're being dangled in front of people as somehow the road of synodality. Now, as you know, Bob was saying, this whole idea of we're going to walk together and then we're going to arrive at a result. Well, where are we walking? What are we talking about? What result are we seeking? Essentially, this is a rehash of 60s and 70s liberal Catholicism, which wanted to overthrow the order of the church. The idea that somehow we're going to have married priests as a solution to what's going on in the life of the church. Uh, this has been dealt with by since Pope Paul VI and his, and his successors. Mm. We don't need further discussion. So I, I see yeah. this as basically navel-gazing and backstroking, saying to people, hey, you're okay, I'm okay. Well, you might phrase it, you're not okay and neither am I. You know, <laughs> that, that may be the new, <laughs> the new paradigm here. But you're right, that 60s idea that somehow we're going to move to some brighter future and look at the result. I mean, look what happened. The spirit of Vatican II, not the letter, but the spirit of Vatican II did such damage to vocations, marriage. I mean, you name it, church attendance, belief in the Eucharist. I mean, we could go down the line. Uh, Jens, I want to share with you some footage from the feast of Saints Peter and Paul at the Vatican today. Uh, the Pope granted the pallium, the sign of authority, to a new group of archbishops, including the newly named Archbishop of Las Vegas, George Leo Thomas. And uh, during the homily, the Pope returned to a familiar theme. He said that of St. Paul, that earlier in St. Paul's life, he was, quote, caught up in the pride of his rigid observance of rules and norms. But after the blinding light, he came to realize how blind he was. Uh, he also referred to Peter, the Pope did, answering the Lord's question, who do you say that I am? And the Pope says, quote, it is not enough to respond to the question of who Jesus is to me with a faultless doctrinal formula set of preconceived notions. No, end quote. Clearly, this distaste for tradition and doctrinal absolutes uh, preconceived notions has been at the heart of this pontificate. How is this setting the stage for the synod, Bob? This is a constant thought that we hear often repeated by the Pope. Yeah. 
Well, uh, I like to return to our Lord when it comes to questions like this. We, we recall that he said not one jot or tittle of the law shall disappear. Uh, you know, the whole world is going to pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then he rebukes the disciples and he says, you know, it's not enough to do only what the scribes and Pharisees do. You have to go further. So this love, this welcoming, you know, this desire to to uh, bring people to Christ that we keep hearing about is actually meant to go further. I mean, sure, no one wants to just follow um, kind of dry rules, but that doesn't mean that the rules right. are thereby abolished. Uh, we have a piece at the Catholic thing coming out today from, uh, from Bishop Schneider uh, in Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. and he, his argument, I don't know if this is exactly right, but it's interesting that he says that what this, this synodal document does is essentially the same thing that the German synodal Weg has been doing, that the German bishops, the very radical um, uh, the steps that they've been taking. It does it in a more sophisticated way. It appeals to uh, all sorts of different things in the many uh, footnotes and pages that are, that are there. But essentially, it's the, the same mm -hmm. thing. And I think the bottom line for this, for me, is to talk about rigidity in the church at this point in 2023. You know, it does exist, of course. There are always hyper-scrupulous people. But if anything, the church in the world at this moment in, in its history is marked by a, a kind of heterodoxy, uh, ignorance of, of uh, Catholic doctrine because it hasn't been taught, mm -hmm. a, a, a lack of respect for the authorities in the church. Rigidity, it seems to me, is very far down on the list. Mm. Returning to the synodal document, uh, Father Jerry, and you can pick up on what, you, what Bob said as well, uh, it says an effort should be made to renew the language used by the church in its liturgy, preaching, catechesis, without demeaning or debasing the depth of the mystery that the church proclaims or the richness of its tradition, the renewal of language must aim instead to make these riches accessible and attractive to the men and women of our time, rather than an obstacle that keeps them at a distance, end quote. Father Jerry, what are you seeing there? And what is this renewal being sought, do you think? Well, I'm very suspicious of that because people often say, well, you know, the language that is used in the catechism of the Catholic Church is offensive and cruel in certain areas, and it doesn't have to be that way. But what they really mean is not the language, but the teaching and the meaning of the language. And the meaning is quite clear. Father James Martin, for instance, says that there's cruelty in the catechism because it describes homosexual activity as intrinsically disordered. And people want to say, well, I'm not intrinsically disordered. Well, this is a comment on behavior, and it is an intrinsic disorder to misuse your body in homosexual activity. Uh, renewal of language is always very uh, concerning because the language that we have now, uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, if I might say, comes down to us in the tradition of the church. It's not arbitrary. Uh, it's not unuseful. Uh, certainly, we can make further explanations of what the meaning is, but uh, renewal of language and catechesis and liturgy, et cetera, uh, very, very suspicious of what's behind it. Within this document are worksheets, okay? These are uh, questions for discernment to be considered during the synodal process in October. At a press conference last week, Vatican reporter Diane Montaigne asked why the following questions were being considered as questions for discernment, when the only possible answer would be to change church teaching. The questions are, I'll put them up, 
How can we create spaces where those who feel hurt by the church and unwelcome by the community feel recognized, received, free to ask questions and not judged? In the light of the post-synodal apostolic exhortation of Morris Letitia, what concrete steps are needed to welcome those who feel excluded from the church because of their status or sexuality? For example, remarried, divorcees, people in polygamous marriages, LGBT plus people, etc. Cardinal uh, Holrick, who is the Synod's relator, he responded this way. Take a look. We do not speak about the church's teaching. That is not our task and not our mission. We just speak to welcome everybody who wants to walk with us. That is something different. Robert, what do you make of Hollerick's answer? Well, see, this is one of the lines that the Vatican has been pushing about what this synod is about, that it, it is not a doctrinal uh, assembly, that it's, we will walk together with anyone who wants to walk together with us. It, I have to say, I mean, commenting a little bit on what Father Murray just said, this change of language, this is something that, that John XXIII tried to do with uh, the, the Second Vatican Council. He said, you know, the, the eternal truths of the faith don't change, but the way that they are presented so that they're more accessible is something that we want to do. And I think Father is exactly right that behind all, all this procedure, in fact, there is a desire to change. We know that Cardinal Holerich has said that the church is simply wrong in its teaching about homosexuality, for example, that, that according to him, modern science has somehow disproved uh, the moral condemnation of homosexuality, which is an absurdity because science is value-free. It doesn't prove or disprove anything. It can just tell you what the, the facts are in the case. So my, you know, my suspicion, and I think more than suspicion, is that, yes, well, okay, there's going to be a process in which all sorts of people are going to participate. But I think we know what the end game is here, and, and the Vatican has been denying that there's a preset goal here, but I, I think quite clearly what the opening is going to be is that the, the people in those categories that the world has set, you know, the feminists, the, the uh, LGBT, et cetera, all that is going to be affirmed. We don't hear anything about people who have been marginalized or feel harmed by the, the loss of their, um, their, their traditional Latin masses, and, and et cetera, more traditional people. So is it predetermined in the sense that uh, it's already written in stone? Maybe a document is, is already written. But I would have to say that the, the procedure actually does point toward an outcome. Father Jerry, I mean, if bishops can't talk about the faith, who does? And what do you make of the questions? Those questions being included for discernment in the document and therefore raised to pride of place. Well, Cardinal Hollerick uh, is doing something that's incredible. Uh, here, he's a successor of the Apostles, a member of the College of Cardinals, and he says in the gathering being assembled by the Holy Father in the church, the mission is not to talk about the church's teaching. Uh, well, wait a minute. The church's teaching is the expression of God's revelation, and it's the whole reason why we believe him to be a bishop or the pope to be the pope or the church to be a church. If we don't talk about those things, then we're singing the tune of the world, and that's not right. Uh, this, this is not mm. what we're supposed to be doing. And, you know, I, Raymond, the, the, the way I look at it is that document puts church teaching on trial. In other words, the teaching and practice mm. of the church over 20 centuries is now being termed 
a subject causing alienation among victim groups who've come forward. Uh, this is all social manipulation. It reminds me of the world of politics in Europe and America. The only way to get influence in America these days is to claim that you've been offended by someone. Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, this is not how society is organized. The church is organized around divine revelation in the sacramental life of the church and the vocation of true charity, which is pointing people to heaven. None of that is in this document. This is basically a sociological manipulative document pointing people into uh, clapping at the end of the meeting because everything comes from the Holy Spirit. This is nonsense. Mm. Well, worse than, worse than the document itself, Father, and we've pointed this out in recent weeks, it's the invitees. This is, it's not as if all the bishops of the world or all the cardinals of the world are invited into this synodal meeting. There is a select group of people who've been invited, including outsiders uh, and apparently now votes by laity. Uh, all of this is a very curious blend. It's a, it's a fixed trial, if it is a trial, Father. And that, to me, is the most offensive thing, worse than, any, than the document or the questions being entertained. But we'll go on here. On the role of women and married priests, which you both raised uh, earlier, the document proposes these questions for discernment. Most of the continental assemblies and the syntheses of several Episcopal conferences call for the question of women's inclusion in the diaconate to be considered. Is it possible to envisage this? And in what way? It goes on. As some continents propose, I didn't realize continents could propose anything, but I guess they can't. Uh, could a reflection be opened concerning the discipline on access to the priesthood for married men, at least in some areas? End quote. Robert, we've seen this again and again and again. Uh, you would think that this kind of clamoring uh, for these pet issues uh, would have died down. Are these not closed issues at this point? Well, you know, this uh, synod is supposed to be un unfolding as, as an expression of the God of surprises and of the new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is about as tired a set of subjects as you could possibly imagine for the church at this point. They, they, they've been dealt with multiple times. Now, the question of married priests in certain uh, contexts, uh, it already exists, for example, in some of the Eastern churches. But that's not what, right. what's at stake here. I, th I think that ultimately what we, see, what we see here is sort of salami tactics, that if we can get, get this win on some sexual issue or that win on some gender-related issue, we may not be able to get more than that for now, but we're, you know, we're headed in the right direction. And, I, and again, I go back to this idea from Vatican II that John XXIII gave the impression that all we were going to do is present the, the, the faith in a, a more accessible way to the people of right now. And we know what doors that opened up. I think this is even much more explicit. Those, those worksheets seem to me to be you want to talk about offensive, I, I think if I were a bishop or even a well-educated layperson, the way those, those worksheets are laid out, and it's, it's worth going onto the website and looking at them, they look like they were created for children. It's look like you're being led along mm. to, you know, to a, a kind of reflection that you weren't, wouldn't be able to arrive at on your own. So, so there's something going on here far beyond the letter of the texts, and I think we have a pretty good idea of what it is, because we've, we've been facing it now for you know, the last six or seven synods. Yeah. Father, uh, according to the document, the synod's uh, task is to be open to the voice of the Holy Spirit. However, what if a bishop does not agree with what the 
alleged Holy Spirit is proposing through the voice of these people. The document poses these questions for discernment, okay? I want you to reflect on this, if you would. How can we deal constructively with cases in which those in authority feel they cannot confirm the conclusions reached by the, a community discernment process, taking a decision in a different direction? What kind of restitution should that authority offer to those who participated in the process? End quote. Now, Father Jerry, I mean, isn't this setting up a conflict between the popular will and the eternal teachings of the church and the authority of the church and who is to decide? And why should there be restitution? No, this is an assault on the hierarchical nature of the church. Uh, the bishop is welcome and should consult people uh, when he has to make a decision or issue a teaching. But in no way does he have to agree with what he's being told. And he certainly doesn't make restitution to people who are disappointed. You know, if a group of lay people in die says, we want women priests, bishop, please go ahead and ordain them, uh, he doesn't owe anything to them except a rebuke and say, no, that's against the faith of the church. We're not going to do it. Uh, this really, this document turns the church into a big discussion group. And the bishops, supposedly in charge, are now, their role, you notice the word used there, confirm. So the idea is that they have to confirm what the Holy Spirit speaks through the people. Uh, this is not what happens, you know, in, maybe in Quakerism or other Protestant groups, uh, people can sit down and say the Holy Spirit wants you to do the following. We don't do that in the Catholic Church because there's nowhere in Revelation where Christ told his apostles, uh, whatever the flock tells you, that comes from the Holy Spirit, and your job is to make sure that everybody yeah. agrees with that. No, that's not what it is. Yeah, well, you, you remember that great synod of 1532 when uh, the synodal gathering of the bishops and the people in, in uh, England would not affirm Henry V's marriage. So he took things in a different way. But that was the popular will. Even the king agreed. And yet he was wrong. And those who opposed him, today we call saints. So I'll leave that there. Regarding the role of the local churches and laity in this synodal process, the worksheet states, since consulting the local churches is an effective way to listen to the people of God, the pastor's discernment takes on the character of a collegial act that can authoritatively confirm what the Spirit has spoken to the church through the people of God's sense of faith. Again, Robert, will the people now tell the bishops what the meaning of the faith is? And do, how do they know? And who's to say? I would say that if you asked most people in a parish, in a diocese these days, what they want to know is how to keep their families Catholic. Much of this discussion, which gets involved in the structures of the church and authority, as we've been talking about, um, that seems to be something that preoccupies people who are in the hierarchy already, in other words, clericalists. For most of the mm. people that I know, they're terrified of what is going to happen to their children living in the culture that we're living in. And we have very, very good evidence. Uh, my colleague Mary Eberstadt at Faith and Reason Institute and other people have written about this. We have very good evidence that the way that the faith is best transmitted, even in modern conditions, is through the family. And so it's essential that the family be preached and, and protected. I get the impression that a lot of people who are most energized, I call them the, the, uh, the synodally intoxicated, who show up for these meetings and, and feel like, you know, the, the church is on the move, are people who don't really recognize the, the kind of concrete day-to-day -day challenges that most people 
uh, in modern societies face. It's, it's keeping your family together, keeping your kids mm -hmm. Catholic, trying to push back against a culture that is very, very aggressive, especially on, on gays and, and, and women. And so, yeah, th these discussions that are, that are being held may satisfy someone somewhere, but the, the, the nitty-gritty of the conversations that need to be held in the church right now at, at the concrete level that the Holy Father always says that we need to be down to are on, on very different subjects. Okay, I got to move on here. Um, Father Jerry, I want you to react to this. Last Friday, the Pope invited 200 artists to the Sistine Chapel to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Vatican's collection of contemporary art. Now, among the 200 invitees was Andre Serrano. Now, that name may ring a bell. Uh, for those who remember back in the 80s, he was the American photographer and creator of the very controversial work known as Piss Christ, I hate to even say it, in which he placed a, a crucifix in his own urine. Now, um, apparently Pope Francis not only greeted him, but uh, gave him a thumbs up. Your thoughts, Father Jerry, on the implication of this? I mean, this controversial work of art, you know, this goes back to the, to the 80s, 1987, and has been considered blasphemous by so many. Why bring somebody like this, such a controversial person, into the Vatican? This is a source of profound sorrow in the life of the Church. Uh, the Pope uh, will, will not meet with the dubia cardinals. Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Brandmuller asked some very legitimate questions about Amoris Laetitia. They asked to have a papal audience. It's been denied. They, they're waiting. It still hasn't happened. And what happens? A guy who's a blasphemer, who pretends to be mystified when anybody would think his work, so-called work of art, has a problem to it, he gets invited to a Vatican gathering. Uh, this is crazy. This man dishonored the Catholic faith, our divine Savior, the symbol of redemption, the Lord on the cross. He, you know, basically treats as the most despicable thing that he can possibly uh, make fun of, and yet he gets invited to the Vatican. It, it was just announced that the traditional Latin Mass that was usually happens in October in St. Peter's is not going to happen, uh, the excuse being that the Synod's going to be going on. But wait a minute. Faithful Catholics who have been coming to Rome for many years now to pray uh, the Holy Mass, they don't get an entry, an entry but this guy does. I, I, the, there's, a, there's a theme here which, sad to say, it, it's evident in so many things. Like, think back to the homosexual ballet dancer who, who danced uh, with no shirt on in front of the Vatican. Basically, worldly people are given free reign to come into the Vatican and smile, and yet people who believe in the faith are either ignored or turned away. This is mystifying and saddening. I think the Pope needs to reconsider what's happening here because it's not promoting the mission of the church. Yeah, well, we, you know, we talk about presenting the church in a new package and presenting it to the public in a new way. Um, I, I, I wonder if any of these uh, embraces of bizarre artistic displays to blasphemous heretical displays, if that advances that mission. I rather think not. Uh, on Tuesday, Pope Francis accepted the resignation, Bob, of uh, Bishop Richard Sticker 
of the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. Bishop Sticker's resignation comes after priests in the Knoxville Diocese spent more than two years asking the Vatican to address the bishop's alleged failures of leadership, including the covering up of sexual assault allegations made against a diocesan seminarian in, in 2021. In 2022, a lawsuit accusing Stika of uh, covering up an alleged rape of a diocesan employee by, by a seminarian. Bishop Sticker cited health issues, including type 1 diabetes and a loss of vision in one eye and a heart attack as the reasons for his early retirement. He is 65, which is 10 years younger than the average retirement age. He did acknowledge that the controversies surrounding his tenure were another factor during an interview. Watch. I've never been accused of sexual abuse, um, and I've never covered up sexual abuse. Um, I myself was a victim of sexual abuse when I was a freshman in high school by a priest. And look at me. I did the therapy, and uh, I'm quite honest and open with it. Bob, your take on this revelation. Yeah, I, look, I, we're all at, all at a distance, and we don't know what's going on. And perhaps one of the things that the Vatican needs to do in, in trying to deal with these cases in, uh, in transparency is the term that's always being used, is to give us some concrete reasons for why uh, a bishop in a diocese is being removed. Now, there, uh, there's a lot that seems very fishy about this story, because the seminarian who he leg allegedly protected from that rape charge was living with him, was getting special uh, monetary re reimbursements, was traveling with him. All of this, which doesn't really pass the smell test. I mean, we don't want to judge someone else on the basis of things that appear in, in the news, because as we know, the news is, is quite unreliable about many things these days. But it, it smells very bad, and if there's something that is so bad that the Vatican feels it necessary to remove a sitting bishop uh, from his diocese, I think we need a little bit more transparency, at least we Americans do, uh, about why he's now gone. Mm -hmm. uh, Father Jerry, I'll, I'll let you comment on that, but I have to add this into onto your, your uh, to-do list. According to reports, Archbishop Alexander Sample of Portland, Oregon, has temporarily shut down the Department of Catholic Schools in his diocese due to a dispute over guidelines the archbishop issued in January regarding gender ideology and the use of preferred pronouns, which led to a handful of principals and teachers resigning, protests from some parents and students. The archbishop's guidelines stated that Catholic institutions should not endorse gender identity theory, nor engage any form of gender transition, whether social or medical. Names, pronouns, facilities use, attire, and sports participation should depend <coughs> upon biological sex identity rather than perceived gender identity. Father, an archdiocesan spokesman told Catholic News Agency that um, the archdiocese is reevaluating how to evangelize, given the changing environment. It does underscore how challenging all this is for any bishop in this age. Yes, well, bravo to bishops, Archbishop Sample because he did the right thing. We cannot cut a deal with the gender ideology crowd uh, because it undermines Christian anthropology. Man is man, woman is woman. You can't transform yourself into the other. Uh, we should not be promoting a uh, homosexual agenda in our schools. Uh, so, no, God bless him for what he's done. Uh, and, you know, if he's not getting supported by his diocesan employees, well, it's time to get some new diocesan employees. And teachers who don't want to promote Catholicism in Catholic schools, uh, they can go teach in the public schools.
Okay, we'll leave that there. The Vatican has launched a formal investigation, and I want both of you to react to this, of the Texas Diocese of Tyler, led by Bishop Joseph Strickland. Now, according to reports, the investigation, known as an apostolic visitation, occurred several days ago last week. Uh, it, it has been reported that the investigation was principally focused on the bishop's social media outreach. Bishop Strickland has been very outspoken about this pontificate, the synod on synodality, defending Catholic orthodoxy. He called out President Biden's departures from Catholic teaching and other issues. Uh, Father Jerry, I'll start with you. Do you think this is an apostolic visitation driven by a belief that a bishop must embrace an acceptance of all things and all beliefs, a rigid progressivism, if you will, to be a bishop? Well, I know a couple of things. First, we only found out about this uh, apostolic visitation at the end of it when it was leaked to the media. So the Holy See, if they right. had concerns about the diocese, why didn't they announce that they were sending someone there? They've done that in case of other dioceses. So number one, it was basically a secret visitation. Uh, and number two, the reasons for it have never really been stated by the Holy See. So therefore, we don't know. What we do know is that Bishop Tyler, the Bishop of Tyler, Bishop Strickland, is a very brave and courageous defender of church orthodoxy, of the traditions of the church. He was there in Los Angeles to protest the outrageous and blasphemous group of the Sisters of the Perpetual Indulgence, uh, who are men who mock nuns and promote homosexuality. He was out there praying at the stadium. So he's a good man. I hope and pray that he doesn't end up like Bishop Fernandez from Puerto Rico, who was summarily removed from this diocese and the Vatican never publicly identified why. Yeah. Uh, Bob, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, just very briefly, uh, I, I have a suspicion be, that it wasn't so much the general presence in social media, because that's been going on for quite a while. Um, it may actually boil down to the fact that, that Bishop Strickland at one point tweeted out that he thought that the Holy Father was undermining the foundations of the Church, and that may be a sore point in Rome. Mm, okay. Uh, on Monday, Democrat self-proclaimed Catholic members of Congress issued a, a statement of principles criticizing last year's decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade and vowing their support for abortion. In the statement, they write, the fundamental tenets of our Catholic faith, social justice, conscience, and religious freedom, compel us to defend a woman's right to access abortion. Following the release of the statement, Democratic Congresswoman Madeline Dean tweeted out the following, I am Catholic and pro-choice. Compassion, tolerance, and love are at the heart of my faith, and it's my faith. I don't believe that anyone has a right to impose religious beliefs on others. Uh, Father, your reaction to this rhetoric, and what do you make of the use of faith to justify abortion? Well, it's absolutely horrendous, and it reminds me of what happened two years ago when the American bishops refused to publicly condemn uh, President Biden for his support of abortion. And, you know, notice over the last two years, has Biden ever changed his position? Oh, he's only gotten stronger. No, for a woman to say Catholicism is my faith and I determine what it means, and that I believe abortion is a compassionate thing, uh, this woman is completely wrong. Uh, she's using her public profile as a, you know, elected official to propagate things which are against the moral norms and moral law of the church. The killing of unborn children is inherently immoral, wrong, it's odious, it's hateful, it's a bad thing to do, and Catholics don't support it. So for her to say I'm a Catholic and I support it, you made a big mistake. You're very, very mistaken. Mm.
Bob, the U.S. bishops clapped back at these pro-abortion lawmakers. Uh, the president of the USCC wrote, members of Congress who recently invoked teachings of the Catholic faith itself as justifying abortion or supporting a supposed right to abortion grievously distort the faith. It is wrong and incoherent. Uh, do you think we're going to hear more uh, about this sort of reaction from the bishops as we get into this political season, Bob? I, I devoutly hope so, because what's being done here is that Catholic teaching on um, social justice, is it not social justice to protect the, the, the vulnerable in the womb? Is it not compassion to, to care about the, both the woman and the child in the womb? Um, is it real conscience? to, to uh, commit murder? The Holy Father has said that abortion is hiring a hitman to solve a problem. And is this a responsible use of freedom? All these things that, are, that are, have a proper meaning in both Catholicism and in the American context are being distorted by this ideology. And frankly, it's the kind of ideology that I fear we may start to see quite dominant as we get near the end of the synodal process. You know, Bob, I was just going to wrap a bow around this and throw this to Father before we leave. Isn't this the synodal church in action, Father, where we are hearing the vox populi, the people of God speaking, and those bishops better affirm what they believe because it's their church? I'll give you the last word. Well, yeah, well, thank you, Raymond. Well, guess what? This is what happens when cardinals like Hollerick say, we're not here to speak about church doctrine. So then what happens? Suddenly, U.S. House members are teachers of the faith? They're not. Uh, this is, look, this is a grave disorder in the life of the church. We all know what Catholicism is because it's been handed down to us from the apostles. You just have to read the catechism. So for bishops to say, I'm not here to teach doctrine, the synod is a meeting about meetings, and therefore whatever comes up, well, we'll find out at the end, and then we'll say the Holy Spirit inspired it. And of, as Bob said, this is, I'm sure they're going to be pro-abortion Catholics among some of those lay people who are going to be, end up being appointed to the Synod, and they're going to get up and say, look, the church's teaching is cruel and unwelcoming. We've got to change it. No, we don't have to change anything. The only thing we have to change is the hearts and minds of those who don't accept the church's teaching on abortion and other matters and say, look, God has given you a plan for salvation. Follow it. It also bespeaks, Father, and I'll, I'll end here, it bespeaks a breach of faith with the Word of God and in the Word of God itself. If the teachings of the church are rooted and find their, their, their sustenance in the words of Christ, the Word of God itself, these, this is, this is, these are the words of life. Either they are that or they are not. And if they are not, then we should give up the ghost. But if they are, we have to stop playing around with the, trying to water it down or change it or twist it or vote on it. It's just not going to turn out well. I'll leave it there. For expert commentary, and you really should read both uh, Robert Royal's columns and Father Jerry's columns on this synod, they're at thecatholicthing.org. They are very insightful, as you heard tonight. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. He is best known all over the world for his portrayal of Jesus in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ and as Mr. Reese in the global TV hit Person of Interest. He's back on the big screen July 4th in a brand new film called Sound of Freedom. It's a thriller. It's based on the true story of former federal agent Tim Ballard, who embarks on a treacherous mission to rescue children from sex traffickers in South America. I sat down with Jim Caviezel recently in Florida to discuss this groundbreaking film. Take a look 
and a bit of Sound of Freedom, followed by my exclusive interview with Caviezel. Watch. It is the fastest growing international crime network that the world has ever seen. It has already passed the illegal arms trade, and soon it's going to pass the drug trade. Because you can sell a bag of cocaine one time with a child five to ten times a day. God's children are not for sale. I want to start, Jim, with why Tim Ballard was so intent that you should play him. Tim saw the Count of Monte Cristo, mm -hmm. and he saw the Passion of the Christ. And initially, Eduardo and uh, Alejandro felt that I wasn't the, you know, Tim as far as the complete makeup of him. But he goes, no, but what's in his heart is, is what I want. How did you first become aware of his work? Um, well, first through my adoption of my children, um, and I became very aware of the dangers of um, what goes on uh, around the world, the children, and um, he, um, you know, I, a lot of the agents I worked with over the time had mentioned and talked about trafficking and how really bad this actually is, and and um, and then um, that's how. It, his name came up and how I, but it was meeting him that I went, okay, uh -huh. we can do something here. You accompanied him on one of these Underground Railroad missions. A tribe. What was that like? What did you learn there? I didn't actually get to go because I prepared for it. Uh -huh. We, they flew me into Salt Lake several, many, many times as I was preparing, mm -hmm. and I was with one of their uh, key snipers. I was, uh, we did, um, they brought me into the, um, they have a, a simulated room where, like police officers use yeah. in the military to, for training. Then we did actual uh, CQC training with uh, live rounds and everything. And then I was in uh, his war room several times um, watching the mission and, and <clears throat> sat through satellite feeds, um, watched what they were doing and preparing for what was going to happen. Then I, you know, just write notes down um, what what are you looking for in this situation, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, and then um, when we got ready to go, he goes, uh, you can't go. It's too dangerous. This one's a bad one. They, and, they didn't feel comfortable having no, you. No, not right. When they're, they could lose their lead, possibly, or wounded going into this one particular mission. Carrie didn't want you, your wife, didn't want you shooting in Colombia. But you did shoot She in wanted Columbia. me to do the film. Yeah, but it not was just going in down Columbia. there. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's a beautiful San country. Diego Don't get me wrong. Would yeah. have been a better alternative. Right. But you go to Colombia. You all flew in like on a prop plane to get to Cartagena. Uh, no, that was more like Santa Marta. Okay. Maybe Santa Marta, that one. But then, then we went into the Medellin area. And then that was kind of And what did you hairy. see there? This was a very different, I mean, this was actually, yeah. actually an area held by the cartel. So when they're coming up to you and talking to you, um, Alejandro noticed it first. Nor normally when the guys are coming up and trying to sell you something, they'll say, do you want cigarillos and mm -hmm. whatnot? And they'll say, you know, do you want mujeres, women? Um, this is the first time they were like, do you want mujeres? And then they go, do you want niñas, niños, little boys, little girls? Mm. So that's kind of different world. But we're the biggest consumers of it here in the United States of America. $152 billion a that's year correct. industry. And give me an idea how big that is, Raymond. That's every sports team, professional sports team in the United States, 
still not 152 billion. Then add on World Cup soccer, you know, all the big Real Madrid, still not enough. All of those as well. And then add on every 18-year-old in the United States going to Stanford University for four years, every 18-year-old. And that, now you're talking 152 billion. Mm. I, I want to backtrack a moment. You talked about Tim Ballard seeing you in Count of Monte Cristo and the Passion of the Christ. Before we get to Sound of Freedom, I want to ask you what you've learned from some of these iconic actors, directors you've worked with over the, your career. Let's start with Richard Harris, who was uh, your, your co-star yeah. in The Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. I think it was his, almost his last movie, second to last, the if second not last, last, right? Yes. What did you learn from Richard Harris? You know, I've never told anybody this before, but I looked at his script and it had his notes and he was, he would like write around the subject, circle the subject and then he would follow it and then he would underline the verb and then he would carry it over to the direct object. This is how he connected it. Along the way, I worked with some phenomenal pros, so I started thinking thoughts. And I said, well, I bet you that's what Richard was doing back there. Connecting the ideas I, and the logic. I underline the, all of my mm, stuff now. Sly Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who you worked with in Escape Plan. What did you learn from these two really icons of yeah. action and something you've done a bit of? They train extremely hard in their athleticism, mm -hmm. as I did when I was coming up. They train even later in their lives continually and they train as hard and they put all that hard training into the work that they do. Mm -hmm. um, I had a scene with um, Arnold where they shoved a giant pipe down his throat and he's that's going further. We have to go in further. And the way he would control it, like the governor who would do that scene. And it was very, very, very physical. Um, and no complaints, no complaining, no whining, Delone. We were down in the brig in a fight scene and they've got all this steel and stuff and he's like boom, boom, and he grabs and he's cut and Probably had to get stitches, and he just like get going. It was Rocky, yeah. you know, and and, um, and that the toughness is what I loved mm -hmm. about both of them. They were very very tough. Well, and this last person is certainly not tough at all on any level. Mel Gibson. What did you learn from working with Mel? He has all the dimensions, right? He has um, the ability to lead. He's incredibly athletic. He's a genius actor. I mean, the guy, Shakespeare, you watch Hamlet, that mm -hmm. tell you everything. Um, he, if you watch the opening scene of um, Lethal Weapon, mm. we'll tell you everything. Mel took it to another le level in the opening scene when he, you see him, uh, in opening scene of Lethal Weapon, he puts that gun to his mouth wow. and you see the tears come out. The level of depth that this guy can, can go is extraordinary. Plus, he's the greatest director I've ever yeah. worked for. He's yeah. a filmmaker. I want to get back to Sound of Freedom sure. now because all of these skills, everything you've just told me from each of these men, you really end up utilizing mm -hmm. in this part. When you got the script, what did you think of the role itself and how did you prepare for that? Um, well, you have a battled war hero story, mm -hmm. you know. You have the innocence of Tim Ballard, 
Um, he's like a childlike quality that um, Jesus talks about. I linked into that. I always wanted to do the movie Taken. When I saw that, I said, God, I wish I was available when that happened. Or It was a brilliant film. Yeah. Well, this was a Taken with a much bigger heart. Mm. Much, much bigger. And um, uh, it, it, I, I, you know, you and I talked about it. I, I think what people get turned off by is they hear all these stories about the trafficking of it, mm -hmm. and that, but you learn something about it. Yeah. So a mother and father should be able to protect their kids. They should want to protect their kids. And people what don't the realize 100,000 children are abducted and, and trafficked in the United States. Forget other countries. No, That's over, just in no, the no, United no. States. 300,000. That high. 300,000 are abducted, are lured into okay. the sex trade a year, Ms. Rojas, okay, um, she, on April 26, she was giving sworn testimony, right, in front right. of the uh, um, House Committee. Right. And um, she admitted uh, sworn testimony that 85,000 children have gone missing that have crossed the border. Mm -hmm. So it's hitting, it, it, it's not a funny thing, this, this, what's going on right now where we have open borders. Why are you letting these killed? kids be taken like this and they've disappeared 85,000 children disappeared that's almost the entire Rose Bowl Stadium yeah and these are the children that were taken into US custody released into the mainland and then the government oh, yeah. does not know their whereabouts that's correct in the movie we see Tim Ballard he rescues a boy and this boy's sister is still being held and used mm -hmm. she is in the possession of a cartel and the boss of that cartel. Some kind of problem, officer? Oh yeah, that uh, that's a old picture. You know how kids are these days, they, they just grow up so fast. That's him. No, no, I, I'm his uncle. Is that reality? Is that a true story? Is this based on a true story? It's like the Count of Monte Cristo where you have 1,200 pages and I got to eliminate characters. I got to get them all down to 14. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so is it page by page? No. I think it would be a big mistake if people went and said, okay, this is not page for page perfect, and you're going to see things you don't want to see and understand why we couldn't put them in there. Yeah. It's far worse than you can imagine. Yeah. Let's face it, you this can't. is explosive, horrible uh, no. visuals. And the way that's delicately done, where you can imagine it but you don't see it, is really brilliant and opens it up I think to a, yeah. a wider audience than had you gotten very explicit with the material. But the, my purpose would be for a mother to sit there and say oh I just don't want to see that film. Well 
you know, if this gets to your backyard, and it is getting to your backyard, and it is in many people's backyards, and if you go to over 300,000 children a year mm. are taken, aren't you responsible at some point to at least learn what to do? How, where are they? How do, and you learn that in the film. So it's, it's a brilliant thing, a uh, uh, weapon for that parent to go, okay, that guy doesn't belong here. Who is that guy? And what's going on over here? My daughter's not going over there. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it'd be like driving it to a gas station. Yeah. If people would just look at the lighting, they would go, oh, you know what? This is, I, I might want to drive another block or two. This well, is not a good Tim, place. Tim always tells the story of Harriet Beecher Stowe, mm. who wrote about what was happening in slavery yes. and kind of awakened the conscience of the country long before there was a civil war or Lincoln came around. That's correct. Is that what your intention here is with The Sound of Freedom yes. and Eduardo's and Alejandro's? Is it to sensitize and awaken the conscience of a country and the world? Oh, absolutely. Well, we went, we're going for the whole thing. Uh, we're doing this two million uh, tickets that, that we're working with Angel right now. We're going to sell two million tickets uh, for two million children that are being trafficked right now. Mm. Send Washington and all these governments a message that children are no longer for sale. God's children are no longer for sale. Which is a line from the movie. That's that correct. Says. I know your wife was worried about your shooting in Columbia. Tim Ballard and his comrades, they're chasing down some of the most evil people on the planet who mean to and traffic in children. Mm. This is not on its face a happy, sweet subject. No. Was there any hesitation from you as a person, as an actor? No, not. When Why not? Because the script was too good. And if you've seen Alejandro Monteverde as a filmmaker, so those two things. And, um, you know, frankly, my world changed after The Passion. So this could end up being one of the biggest films I've done. And hmm. they're selling like hotcakes right now. But what I have to tell your viewers is we only have 2,100 screens where uh, Disney's film has got 4,500 screens. Well, you're up to 3,000 screens today. Oh, wow. So you're up to 3,000 hey, screens big. now. Wow, I'm in a good mood now. <laughs> but tell people with... what you want them to do. Because this is a, Angel Studios works differently than other studios. Yes. Well, they have a pay it, for, a pay it forward program. They give tickets away for free. Hmm. You know, they know that people have, uh, have been down on their luck, have you know, are unemployed, what's going on in the United States has affected a lot of people, so they can't afford it. Well, so, you know, you will be in the future, but right now, go to the film, go through the program, it's easy. And w what benefit we get? Tell everybody you loved it. Mm. That is one of the best, mm -hmm. you know, th you, ideas I, I've, I've ever heard of in film. We, studios would never do this. And you've said this is the second most important film of your career. Hmm. Passion. The passion being your first. There's no question. Is the resurrection coming? Yes. How soon? So I went up to him and I asked him that. I said, are we going to be ready? Mel. Yes. I said, uh, will, be, will we be ready to go by January? And he said, yeah, maybe. And I said, uh, end of the fall? Yeah, maybe. And I said, September? Yeah, maybe. And so now you go, so I, my mind, you'd think I'd say, okay, it'll be January. Mm -hmm. I'd asked him the same kind of thing when we did The Passion. Mm -hmm. It was uh, in August, 
it was August 15th, that he said, okay, green means go on August 15th. Mm. It was amazing because all of the Marian feast days, we just kept running into them on that film. Mm. You know, I like to, I know that she was making that film for her son. What is your prayer for your audience who sees Sound of Freedom? What do you want them to do in the aftermath of seeing this movie? I want you to not just think about trafficking. We have to think about grooming. We have to think about that. If you cut an arm off of, of an octopus, let's say it's trafficking, what happens? It grows right back, doesn't it? So you got to take the head out. We have to come together with all the churches in the world, all Christian churches, and unite and take back our children and our republic. It all goes hand in hand. We've got to come together, save our children, and it'll go hand to hand with our republic. And it, we got to get rid of pornography. That's one of the big ones. You just drive all of the country. All you're doing is creating more pedophiles. The Passion of the Christ is a film that opened my heart, my eyes, gave everything for it. I gave everything for this one. It took two years to, to uh, sleep decently. I couldn't sleep because mm. of this. Mm. And so what I'm excited about is that finally the world is going to start moving in that direction. Mm. Is there a sequel plan? There's a script already. They've really? already done a budget on it, but it, obviously it's based on the success of this film. And it's not a two, it's just the next chapter. Mm. This mission goes from Colombia to Haiti, mm. and this one is even better than the first script. Sound of Freedom 2, we'll be waiting. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. Great to Thank see you. you. Sound of Freedom, starring Jim Caviezel, hits theaters Tuesday, July 4th. For information on theaters and showtimes, how to get advanced tickets, and how to help Sound of Freedom reach that two million for two million goal, that's two million tickets for the two million trafficked children, visit angelstudios.com forward slash freedom. All the information is there. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen. Unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching, and may you and your families have a blessed Independence Day. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.